We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha. Thanks for listening to the Layman's Lounge. Today we have Yuri Brito with us to discuss, amongst other things, the CREC and Abraham Kuyper and Kuyper's influence on the former. To check out some of his books and his articles and teachings and such, you can go to yuribrito.com. So it's U-R-I-B-R-I-T-O. Like Portuguese, Brazilian name, right? Tudo bem? Tudo bem. That's exactly right. All right. You got... uh, Man, you got your hands in a few different things <laughs> these days, and you have had them in the past, and I'm kind of excited about all of them. Can you give us a, an overview of what you got up your sleeve and such? Well, I function in the Gary North School of Thought, which means that I, I need to have always five to ten projects ongoing as a way of keeping the momentum and the rhythm of of productivity. Otherwise, and they, you... call, and they did call Kuiper, whom you love like the man with eight heads or something like that. So yeah, that's, that's exactly good. right. Yeah, he was a productivity monster. And so God has uh, put a lot of things on my plate. And usually, you know, you give positions of leadership to people who already have a lot going on, not to people who don't have anything going on. <laughs> so you you play on there on the um, on the rhythm and momentums that have been established and you just add them up. So I mean, in my case, I have done a lot of writing over the years. I've done podcasts. I'm a pastor here in Pensacola, Florida, which is the panhandle of Florida. I do a lot of uh, international, um, national and very soon international traveling for speaking engagements. And I have um, specific roles in my own denomination, which is the uh, Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, the CREC. I was just elected uh, a month and a half ago to serve as the presiding minister over the entire council, the entire denomination, which now spans from you know Pensacola Florida all the way to uh Eastern Europe and to Japan and different places around the world so God has been very faithful in putting me in these positions and I hope I can be uh, faithful in giving back to these um institutions that have placed so much trust in my work nice he's also the author of a commentary on Ruth a few others are a co-author on a commentary on Ruth and he did, failed to mention that he started um Kyperian commentary way before Kuiper was cool. That's how, exactly right. How did you and I'll let the let the listener know, and even you, Yuri, you probably have no idea remembering this. When I started this podcast, I wrote you and I said, How do you do a podcast, man? Like, like on the back end, like, do I gotta do I gotta go to some website? Do I gotta download something? And you set me up. So thanks for getting me cooking. Um uh, I, I don't remember that, but I'm I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> um, how did you like you were Kuiper before Kuiper was cool? And I find that interesting. How did that how did that happen to you? Well, before the age of hashtags, I did uh read a lot of Abraham Kuiper. And the way it began, I'll tell you the story. The way it began was I was in seminary in uh Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And I had a great appreciation for one of my professors whose name still is John Frame. He's still alive. And I walked into his office one day as a way of pursuing uh, a bit more interaction with him. And I proposed that we would do an independent study, which was something <laughs> you could do in those days. And that study was, I, I offered to do an independent study on Abraham Kuyper. And I mm. said, I would do a thousand pages worth of reading. And I would write a 15 page paper. And that was for two credits. And he looked at me and he said, what about 2000 pages of reading and a 20 page paper? And I got to tell you, that was the hardest two credits I've ever earned in all of my seminary <laughs> career. But he was very gracious. So we spent a lot of time together. And but that allowed me to delve into Kuiper, specifically uh, his uh, lectures at Princeton called the Stone Lectures, which was a a private and personal invitation that Kuiper received from the great Princetonian B.B. Uh, Warfield, who invited him to go to the United States in 1898. And so I read those lectures on Calvinism. And in fact, recently, Canon Press published a, a, a new version of lectures on Calvinism, which is beautiful. They always do things so well. And I wrote a, a 
3,000 word introduction to that book. So you can uh, buy a, a brand new copy of uh, Lectures on Calvinism, neatly formatted. And so that was my beginning of Abraham Kuyper studies. And then the political political connection was during the uh, 2004, six Ron Paul campaign. I don't know if you remember that here. Yeah. And I was very intrigued by Ron Paul in 2006, I think, leading up to the 2008. And I began writing and I thought, who would be someone who would exemplify this vision of the Lordship of Jesus in all areas of life that would think very distinctly from uh, American writers, but who would bring a recognizable name? Because I'm I'm a popularizer by um, by profession, and I didn't want to choose some guy that nobody ever heard of. I didn't want to choose Hodemacher. I didn't want to choose uh, Martin Bootser. I want to choose someone who had a recognizable name, and I chose Abraham Kuyper because he is undoubtedly one of the most prolific figures in history. Mm-hmm. Wrote over a hundred books. Was uh, someone who was involved in uh, in politics in the Netherlands. Uh, became prime minister in the Netherlands, was a pastor in the Reformed Dutch Church of the Netherlands, uh, started Christian colleges, was invested in Christian schools, had a prominent role in the uh, in the discourse of uh, the political discourse all throughout the Dutch um, the the, um, the 19th century Dutch history, and he was a perfect individual. And so I thought, what I want to offer is really a, a commentary on current political scenes in the United States. And I didn't want to say Yuri's commentary yeah, because I was unknown and still am unknown. So I chose Abraham Kuyper as this, a perfect representative of that. So I began, I think in 2004, the Kuyperian commentary, I began alone, totally alone. And after about a, a six months to a year writing about Ron Paul and American politics and some theology, I said, why don't I invite a friend to join my uh, my adventures. And those days blogging was common, was not as common. Yeah. And those two friends have now up to 2023 become 23 friends. Mm. And so I have uh, around 23 to 25 writers who write for Kyperion. Uh, they do it pretty consistently. Um, I, sometimes I wish they were more consistent, mm. but it's, it's really an amazing thing because we've gotten, you know, we've, we've been quoted by Fox news, we've been quoted by a lot of different um, newspapers, organizations, Right. And now it's quoted so much. Uh, for example, I was reading uh, just I'm reading to my boys a book written by Michael Foster called It's Good to Be a Man. Yeah. And right on I was reading the boys. I haven't read the book until just recently. So my boys and I, we get up really early and I read portions of the book to them. Hmm. And somewhere on page 20, there's a quotation from Kyperian commentary, which I didn't ah. know in the footnotes. <laughs> so that's yes. how how far it's gone to places that I, I'm not even aware of. No way. That's God, God has awesome. been very gracious. Yeah, I listened to the book, so I didn't see the I didn't see the footnote or whatever. That's really cool, man. How um so John Frame, you know, I know he, you know, man, he's he knows everything. Like he he's he's a little bit like Kuiper in that sense, but I remember him writing or reading a a critique on some of the like the reformational philosophy thing, you know, I think he, I think he ended up saying that he didn't stand by everything he originally said, but my point is he saw the, the potential for utter insanity, liberal drift of the Kyperians that got my my boy Bram rolling over in his grave. I got James Bratt, one of Kuiper's biographer over here, pissed off because it, the the denomination won't allow like gay people to like hold hands together and kiss and sing and praise to the living God. And I'm like, James Brat, you are diabolical. Please unhitch from the name. Please unhitch. That's part of my program. And I know it seems a little visceral, but I I'm like, when you first hear of Kuiper these days, maybe 50% of you is like, well, isn't that kind of those woke social gospel guys? And it's, it's so depressing. And I want to talk about a lot of things about the, the denomination once, but I got to get your quick uh, hot take on, do you just throw up in your mouth by when you read, even some of the guys who are supposed to be on our side, I'm not going to name any names now. Kuiper talked about 
everything. He talked about fashion. He even talked about men becoming wanting to become women and women become men. But our so-called conservative guys, crickets. Oh, and that's almost makes me more mad than the liberal guys. I know I got you all fired up right now. No. I bet you go. <laughs> That, that that's exactly right. So you got you have to make that distinction, unfortunately, right? Because you get such a popular figure yeah. in some ways, not to that extent, but in some ways, you have some liberal scholars using Calvin for these kinds of things as well, yeah. which is depressing. And speaking of diabolical, you get places like Calvin Seminary, right? Mm -hmm. That has strayed as far. I mean, diabolical is a strong word, but in some ways, they have strayed far from the Kuyperian vision, and so did the Free University of Man Amsterdam. That Kuiper founded has strayed very far. These institutions are nothing of the representatives of Kuiper that Kuiper would have envisioned long ago. But that's what you see. You see liberals who think the social outworking of the gospel in institutions, and they say, we don't care about what social gospel presentation meant for Kuiper in Kuiper's day. What we care about is we want to make we want to bring a, a form of gospel to various areas of institution, whether they have attachment to Kuiper or not. So in other words, they take the principle that Kuiper lays out of the, of the lordship of Jesus or the application of Christian, uh, Christian thinking to the civil sphere and to, uh, as you mentioned, even art and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And they completely unhitch it from the biblical rationale that Kuiper had. I mean, I have in my office here, I have various of his tomes uh, put together by Lexham Press. Yeah. And I love Bratt's biography of it. But these guys are, they view Kuiper uh, primarily through the lens of, of a uh, someone who whose biography needs to be spoken of, yeah. but they don't understand the context in which Kuiper wrote, which was precisely to oppose the kinds of silliness among the woke world or BLM yeah that these guys are submitting and succumbing to, you know, so they are, they, they are, they don't speak, they don't speak for Kuiper. They speak for a, a, a vision of Kuiper that never existed. No, hundred percent. And that's why I'm, I'm just like begging people politely through email, please stop saying you're Kuiperian because it's messing. It's messing everything else up. You're yeah. not, you're not, you're not Kuiperian. Um, Man, I, I really want to go on those things, but I think I'll stop there. You went to RTS during the golden era. Um, That's right. You, I was there just, the golden yeah. era. It was in the early 2000s. I was there for four years. I also got my doctorate there late, much later there. But when I was working in my MDiv, it was as if all the great professors in the reform world decided to go to Florida to retire. <laughs> and, and everybody wants to go to Orlando. A variety of reasons they they love the weather there's disney world so it's a you know even though it's changed a lot this disney's yeah. changed a lot since i was there in the early 2000s but in those days we had some elderly professors so you get guys like john frame uh, simon kistemacher who has since passed away who was a true kyperian a dutch man you know uh 10 kids walked uh two or three miles to school every day the old school kyperian guys Mm -hmm. um, in those days, we had Richard Pratt, who works for Third Millennium, who was still quite a quite a stalwart, uh, just a just a, a fabulous figure. And then we had coming through very consistently uh, Bruce Waltke. Yeah. Uh, we had just a lot of great voices, and of course Sinclair Ferguson, who I took a lot of classes from, came very consistently. And then we had the 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 resident guys who were there, like uh, John Frame. Of course, I mentioned Kistemacher, but also. Um, uh, Richard Pratt was also there, but then you got guys like Reggie Kidd, who was sort of instrumental in the in the, the worship world. It was just a uh, a star studded sort of um, uh, crowd there, and I was just very very pr privileged to have been there during that season. And uh, things have changed dramatically. There are a lot of new faces that I don't uh, recognize, but I, I do know that there's been a little bit of movement away from that Ventilian Framian vision at least in the apologetics world, which is, it's sad to me because I think it was the, the Ventilianism that preserved the ethos yeah. of RTS. And it was so beautiful. And of course, I came a couple of years after RC Sproul, RC had left already, but still his, he was, his influence was still there. And we attended the, his church for a little season. There was just a lot of beauty around there in those days, a lot of um, very stalwart reform thinkers.
So cool. And I, I, you, you start early on as a pastor. And I think you had mentioned that you look out in the small congregation and there's your boy, James Jordan. You're just preaching to James Jordan. Um, that's such a funny story. I never heard that. I was just doing some recon before and listen to some, some interviews and it, it sort of all makes sense now. Like the John frame, like it's always Kuiper. It's always John frame. It's always James Jordan. And you know, the, these guys. Um, so I, I love Kuiper and, you know, and this is a whole other discussion, but I've, I like really draw a lot from Luther again. That's, I know that's a lot of thing. You love Kuiper and you draw a lot from Jim Jordan, right? What, 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 what are like the specific flavors or just um, compelling the theological just realities? Do you like, not that you emphasize that you just really like, you know, this is good. I, I really, whatever thing you're doing as, whether it's a, you know, a pastor or moderator, author, whatever, what you kind of bring with you and you're like, Hey, this, this is a pretty good pro I'd like to share with you folks. That's a great question. One of the things I want to, I, I like to, to teach, whether it be my students, when I go to Brazil or churches, or, you know, when I'm doing training for younger pastors, because I, I've moved from that era. I'm in my forties now, so I'm no longer, I'm in the middle there. But one of the things I want to convey to them is that the Christian gospel is multi-layered. It's as I refer to it often, it's, it's multi-perspectival. And because that's the case, when Christian thinkers or authors or pastors or leaders or laymen are trying to convey the gospel through whether the gospel in politics, the gospel in social issues, whatever it is, that they avoid the kinds of evangelical cliches that really trivialize the gospel. It brings it down to Fox News level. Yeah. And what I want to avoid is Christian leaders who are going out there representing the gospels using uh, the kinds of trivial language that make the gospel fitting for, you know, for consumption. Um, I don't want the gospel to be um, consumed. I want the gospel to be absorbed and adored. And so the gospel is not fast food. It's like a, it's, it's a five course meal with Mm. various, you know, various drinks being offered. Mm. And so if that's the case, then one of the things I want that I've learned a lot from, from Kuiper, from Jim Jordan, and from you know guys like Peter John Frame, Peter Lighthart John Frame, is that when you present these things, use language carefully, and that means that you sometimes need to. I tell my my uh, those who uh, so I train in in preaching, you know, edit, edit, and edit your sermons, especially if you're going to manuscript, um, phrase things in a way that draws people to the content, rather than simply saying rather than simply preaching to the amen crowd, you know, mm. you want your material to be communicated. This comes very through in, in Jim Jordan, communicating in a way that grabs their attention, but forces them to marinate those thoughts for one, two, three, four days. Mm. And if that's the case, then you're not simply saying, you know, the gospel is, um, the gospel changes lives. What you're saying is the gospel the gospel establishes a foundation for a life well-lived. Right. And so you're rephrasing theological categories that the evangelical world uses every day. Mm. And you want to phrase things that are provocative and that they don't sound like your standard First Baptist in any congregation you go to visit. Uh, yeah. in, in a way that draws them into the text itself, into the content, rather than simply receiving your standard amen. Yeah, that's so good. That's always a need. You kind of sort of have to, you know, what do they say? An expert is someone who could teach or describe like the most basic fundamental thing. And it's like, yeah, I had to wake up a few years ago and say, what's the gospel? Is the gospel just to share the gospel? (laughs) Um, So you were part of the PCA, maybe it was like six or eight years or whatever. But then you become aware of this small denomination or confederation or communion whatever this thing this crec can you tell us how you first heard of the crec 
And what was your sort of either dissatisfaction in the PCA or what just was more glorious about the uh, CRC? And by the way, were you a kind of a young restless reform guy? I remember hearing you read Mike, Mike Horton's Putting Back Amazing Grace early on. And that was the first book that I read. Oh, that, that's crazy. Yeah, I was like, what? So anyways. Well, my father was a Baptist minister. And as I... When I was in college, I went to a I went to a Bible Presbyterian college, which by the time we arrived had become somewhat independent, independent Baptistic, you know. And so it was there where I came across uh, Presbyterians, and this is in the uh, you know late nineties, early two thousands, and I was able to interact with these Presbyterians, and within two years or so, I was I, I bought into the Presbyterian vision, and that vision was something that I had to. Uh, as I said, to to absorb little by little, because when you go from the Baptist world to the Reformed Presbyterian world, it is such a gigantic world. You know, um, there, there's a reason Presbyterians write all the commentaries because they are yeah. so invested in the text of the Scriptures, so invested in a life and worldview. And so that was the my my infancy stage in the Reformed world, and somewhere around 2000 2001. That world opened me up to the Christian Reconstructionist movement. I think I talk about this somewhere. So, in other words, I came to the Reformed world through the to the recons rather than rather than through your standard, you know, John MacArthur, John Piper route or yeah. R.C. Sproul route. Wow. Those guys came. Those guys came a little later. I was reading Gary North in 1999. I didn't like what he was saying, but I was reading his material, and I was reading J.B.J. You know. Uh, thir uh, nine years before I ever met the guy. <laughs> and so that opened me up to a world of Reformed theology that I thought was common, but then the more I explored, I realized that, no, these guys are the minority in the Reformed world. And so once I entered the PCA world, I began to uh, become more familiar with mainstream PCA. And uh, that was um, the kind of, it, it was somewhat... These words were in conflict, but I've always functioned in the sense that um, irenicism sort of brings these worlds together. So I was always trying to reconcile what, what, I, what I was reading in Gary North, reconcile what I was reading in Sinclair Ferguson or R.C. Sproul. So these worlds were coming together, and I was finding a cohesive way of living in those, these worlds. Hmm. But then somewhere in those early days, I came across uh, guys like Wilson and I came across guys like Peter Lightheart and uh, a guy who's no longer in Moscow. His name was Doug Jones. And Did I was you reading say Wilson as in Doug Wilson, as in Doug Wilson. Oh, yeah. We're going to have to edit that out. We're going to have to. <laughs> I right, keep going. Yes. He's, he's one of those evil trenders on Twitter. He's so bad. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, and so as I was reading these guys, I, I realized that that world was becoming more and more incoherent when it came to um, how the PCA was offering their standard approach to theology. Which is and, real quick. Can, I'm sorry to cut you off, but can you give almost maybe one example when you're talking about the Wilsons and the Gary Norths and, and all these guys, what, and then, and then like the PCA world, what, what might be sort of one for the uninitiated? What, what is the flavor or a specific that we're talking about here? Well, uh, maybe uh, uh, a, somewhat of a provocative way of phrasing that is that these guys viewed Abraham Kuyper as an infant in the reformed world, you know? In other words, they had moved so far beyond Abraham Kuyper. Mm. Kuyper was a great introduction, but for, you know, Kuy but Kuyper didn't go far enough for these guys. And so these guys were saying, no, no, Kuyper uh, introduced us to the lordship issue and the political sphere and all that. But, but Jim and, Doug Jones and Peter Lighthart said, no, we need to, we need to have a biblical view of reading the Bible. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's how far they went. We need a biblical view of reading the Bible. And we need to inculcate our people with a kind of hermeneutic that's not just merely superficial. You know, grammar's good, history is good, but what is the text saying that that allows us to view the Bible more holistically? Why is Genesis 1 to 3? A foundational book or it's foundational chapters for understanding Genesis 4 to Revelation 22. And so that's the kind of stuff these guys were doing. And it was it was rocking my world. But the part that you're asking specifically that really 
uh, I knew would kill my chances of remaining the PCA were on issues of sacramentology. Mm. And that had to do with how do I understand baptism? How do I understand the Lord's Supper specifically? How do these things relate to my children? Mm-hmm. And these questions were nice and they were abstract and they were very foreign to me when I didn't have kids. But when we were pregnant with our first uh, our first child, then it became really relevant because now I have to think to myself, do I baptize them? Check. But then what happens to them in the community? Do they remain baptized but non-participants in communion until a certain age when they're able to I know cognitively understand what the atonement meant, because if Mm. that's the case, then I'm back to square one in my Baptist world. Mm. And I didn't want that. What I wanted was a consistent worldview that brought my children through the Red Sea, but then to the table in the promised land. I needed to have that cohesiveness. Mm. And I was finding out early on in the PCA that that wasn't going to fly. Mm. That even though I could take an exception to these things, I couldn't teach it. Mm. And all you have to do is spend one minute with me to realize that was not going to work. That I I can't believe something that I can't teach. Yeah. Yeah. So the PCA became less and less a home, even though I'm so grateful for everything they provided for me. And so at some time in 2007 and 8, I realized that I had to look for something else. Mm. And the CREC was always there in the horizon. But I also knew at the time that it was incredibly small. And I didn't know if it was one of those micro Presbyterian denominations or Reformed denominations that were going to come and then go within a year or two. And Mm -hmm. as a father of a child, I wanted a denomination that's going to provide me stability. Mm -hmm. But um, I knew through a, I I was, what sealed the deal for me was a conversation that he doesn't even remember a conversation with a friend of mine in Monroe, Louisiana, by the name of Steve Wilkins. Um, I met with Steve, and at that point, I realized that my future was going to be in the CREC, even if it only had one more year of existence. But I knew that that was where I would fit best when it came to my view of the sacraments, my Kyperianism, and my understanding of biblical hermeneutics. Even barring, even barring, barring your notion of the sacraments, and going back before about um, uh, always reforming, even beyond the always reforming Kuiper, it sounded to me like that world that you had was was the world that the young, restless, reformed people actually probably wanted. And and many, I think, are now ending up there, while as the rest of them all became like Anglican and woke. So bizarre. And some went Orthodox. Remember when oh. it was called? The Orthodox for yeah. a little bit. That's yeah, like I, I where do, it was like two years. It's like, oh, I'm Orthodox. <laughs> I do remember that, and I remember uh, flirting a little bit with it. And uh, it was actually James Jordan's book called "The Liturgy Trap" mm-hmm. that really set yeah. me straight after that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but that, but that's what happens when you get you get a movement that is focused on that has a little bit of theological gravitas, right? These guys mm-hmm. were reading R.C. Sproul. Mm-hmm. But it's completely rooted in immaturity, totally, and and immaturity, and you know these, this visceral reaction to everything. And so you yeah, get yeah. guys like Mark Driscoll, which I actually think today, I think he's much more mature and in some ways doing much more good. But he's mm-hmm. obviously strayed a lot from that mm-hmm. reform, uh, yeah. that reform ecosystem. Yeah, I will say, and the the when I and a lot of us happen upon the young restless reform, it satiated sort of mental realities of like, who's going to heaven, who's going to hell and like what matters. But we all want to know about sex and kids and, and, and not just our afterlife. And if we know we're saved, like we want to know about, I got a crappy job. What do I do about it? Other than just mass evangelize as at it. So anyways, so the CRC, Man, that took longer because your story is so good. I'm sorry. So no, no problem. Shifting now to the CRC, you find this denomination, you come in it at so historical overview. Who, what, where, when, why was was this thing started? In the year 
1998, there were three ministers in the Pacific Northwest, Doug Wilson being one of them, um, who found themselves independent in independent churches. Right, Doug wait, Wilson. Wait. Yeah. I'm sorry, I've got to add this this quote about Doug Wilson. You wrote an article a few years ago, and this is what you and, and you're talking about why you love the CREC. And by the way, listeners, people who are in the CREC love the CREC. I just saw a video of like, <laughs> it said like the Moscow mood, and it was just a ton of people just living the dr a dream life. Just anyways. Okay. Um, so here's a quote from Yuri from a few years ago, um, talking about why, why he loves the CRC. First, let's put the cards on table. Doug Wilson is the man. You may not like his beard or from whence his cigars cometh. But this fellow has successfully irritated the right people for too many years to count. His joyful disposition and his plotting mammoth mammothness come with too many blessings to count. May his tribe increase and may his lab <laughs> and may his labors make Peter ends lose his sleep. <laughs> Anyways, that I we need to add that caveat for just like these default bootlickers where it's cool <laughs> to hate Doug Wilson. If you hate Doug Wilson. You don't, I guarantee it's only because someone else told you to hate him. So just suspend that while we finish this interview. Sorry, I just wanted no. to put that great quote in there. <laughs> I don't I don't remember saying it, but it sounds like something I would say. I, in, in 99, uh, 98, there were a couple of independent pastors. You know, Wilson was still very much in the evangelical free in Moscow, Idaho, evangelical free church. And the other pastors were independent reform. And what they decided to do was gather forces and say, let's form a bit of a, a, a an alliance here under these particular distinctives. And so they formed an alliance, which includes, you know, included Baptists, included Presbyterians. And that's how they functioned early on. And they formed what was considered what was called the uh, Confederation of Reformed Evangelical Churches, the CREC. That confederation of churches of three congregations obviously began to grow little by little, had the addition of men like um, just godly men in the CREC, like uh, Randy Booth, for example, in Nacogdoches, Texas. And so that increased to where we are today, where there are around 130 churches and probably uh, 30 to 50 churches uh, contemplating the CREC. And so God has really increased our numbers and as you may recall, of course, a, a lot of the increase, I mean, we were already on a upward trajectory before COVID, but COVID uh, opened the floodgates of blessings. And that was a season of our history, which for many people was the, the worst of times, but for us, it was the best of times yeah. Yeah. because it allowed us to put into practice what we as a communion had been talking about for a long time. Yeah. It's not that we don't see a role for the government or the role for the state, but the state had lost itself in corruption and in false priesthoods. And so therefore, the church had the prerogative and the authority to tell the state, hell no. And we did that together as a communion. And because of that, our reputation went far and wide. And mm -hmm. to this day, we still uh, receive a lot of we have a lot of visitors in our congregation in Pensacola. We've we've uh, I hear testimonies of church of churches in the CREC doubling in size during that season. I would hear them very often, no and so way. God has really blessed us. And what He has blessed is not just um, uh, a random decision we made in March of 2020. What He blessed were a thousand decisions made since mm. 1998. Mm -hmm. Do you think that part of that? The growth and the appeal is the notion that the CRC is is an every square inch and not just you're not just a church that wants to plant churches and you're not a just a quote gospel centered church. Not that the gospel isn't of the most importance and and you're not just trying to be winsome or whatever, but you're trying to talk about all the normal things that we actually deal with. Exactly. And you, you mentioned this earlier, which I thought was a good point, is that it's very important to ask people, what do they mean by the gospel? Because what a lot of these movements have done in the past, you know, these church planning networks, Acts 29, whatever, is they have literally um, narrowed the gospel to the point where 
the thing that matters is the privatization of the gospel. And so Kuyperianism, I think, is uh, people will have some differences with Kuyper, even as I do. But yeah. what you're going to see, it's very much permeating our churches. And what that does is it allows pastors and parishioners to be bold in certain places and in certain times, whereas churches that don't have that kind of backbone and DNA very easily will give the men with the nice suits outside your church, will give them not only the keys to their church, but also the codes to get in. Yeah, and that's yeah, a, that's yeah. very significant. And even, even for even Kuiper on, on his worst day of mere natural law, I mean, the guy's still, you know, <laughs> if if all the people who want to privatize everything, if they would even just read Kuiper and just read him, assuming that he only wants natural laws, part you're still gonna n- look nothing like you're looking around. You're just gonna look like basically like when America started, kind of. Um, so Doug Wilson was part of the beginning, and it's weird because you know people love to hate Doug, but I don't know if maybe I don't have my ear to the ground enough. I'm not a CREC member. Um, there's none around me. The CRC doesn't seem to get, uh, or do they, do they get as lumped in? I feel like not, it's not like we hate Doug and we hate the CRC. It's like the CRC, is it somehow maintaining a little bit of distance or people not going out of their way to connect the dots or what, what do you think? I think people, you know, naturally when you have a, a leader in the, in the, in a, in a group, right. With like, like Pastor Wilson, for example, in Moscow, and they are, you know, they are one of the most productive institutions that I'm aware of in the yeah. in the twenty the twenty first century in terms of the fact that they don't have millions yeah. and millions of dollars popping in through donors, but they this is a ground up kind of thing. They're okay. they're collecting people there that are people that are productive that want to keep producing mm. podcasts books movies you know documentaries and they keep doing that day after day eventually that catches up with society and so you get people who are very much you know frustrated with the they're frustrated with Wilson because he represents a lot of that there but I think they're frustrated ultimately <laughs> this is my cynical side they're frustrated with the level of productivity and the level of influence that Moscow is having in their congregations mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's not uncommon for me to have uh, a pastor in town who or in town or other places to say listen um I don't like what you guys do and we have guys in our church who are continually asking me about the Canon Plus app or something that Doug wrote, or a sermon that was published of yours on Canon Plus. And so they're trying to, and that's why I wrote recently on Twitter, that yeah. pastors who are trying to navigate these things and these people, what they shouldn't do is saying, Doug Wilson is evil, uh, run away. Because what's going to happen is people are going to say, huh, yeah, uh, is he really evil? What they're going to, they're going to, they're going to become more curious. Totally. So what they're going to do is drawing them more so. And obviously, you know, our church has grown significantly. Uh, I don't want everybody in town considering our church, right? I want churches to blossom. I want churches to flourish in the Baptist tradition and the Anglican tradition. I want it to flourish in truth, uh, but I do want to caution pastors who are trying to get rid of the Doug Wilson infection yeah. uh, to be very cautious because that that thing is infectious. Mm-hmm. And once you get a hold of, as I mentioned, a worldview that those guys espouse in Moscow, that we espouse in Pensacola, a worldview that says conservative backbone, a high view of worship, a joyful singing congregation, godly families, happy wives, cigars, drinks, joy, hospitality. There is no way in this world that people are going to answer to that kind of thing. I always say, I always say this here. It's probably not original of me, but I say this very often. The more attacks we get, the happier we become. Mm. And it's very hard to take away joy when it's so evident. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so what these people are doing, I think they're making people twice as sons of not Belial, but twice as sons of the CREC, because Mm. what every dad wants is to have a wife that is submissive and a wife that is thoughtful 
and a wife that is hospitable and joyful. Mm-hmm. What every dad wants for their kids is that they grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, not in a generic sense, but in a true biblical sense. Mm-hmm. And even though we're not mighty and powerful, we offer that. And I think everyone needs to be very self-aware that mm. these are the kinds of things that every Christian should desire. And by God's good grace, we're producing that kind of stuff again and again. There was a study done some years ago in within our denomination. Uh, I don't know if it ever went public, but it was available to the pastors in the CREC, that over 90 plus percent of our children stay in the church once they leave high school and college. That is an incredibly high statistics. And not only are they leaving, uh, not only are they staying within the church, but the vast majority of them are staying within CREC churches. Mm -hmm. And that, when when you add the idea that we're having lots of kids, that leads to the proliferation of our vision not only to the world, not only to the United States, but I can tell you as the presiding minister now of the denomination, I get constant calls and texts and emails and Facebook messages from people all over Europe, ranging from Spain to Norway to Nairobi, Kenya, interested in what we're offering. Because I think what we're offering is not an American vision, but it's a vision that can very easily translate to the world. People, uh, Kuiper... You know, he spoke to the Klein Lloyd and the the little people, the normal people, like not not big ever. He was talking to the people on Twitter, you know, and not just the seminary students. So and he had something to say about everything. And even his best friend, even, you know, Bob Inc. was disagreeing with him. But the thing he was doing, and this is where I liken him unto Doug and even a lot of a lot of you guys, you guys are at least talking about the things that are real and we're actually wondering about. Everyone else is just living up in cloud 44, talking about theological truth. But I mean, we're supposed to continue reforming, not that we're, you know, changing, but let's, let's, how does all that, how does this stuff apply for all of life? Um, Right. Man, I only got, well, let, let me say this too. And I think what I found is that a lot of pastors are genuinely defensive of their brand. And so if they get someone who is curious in their congregation and taking a different route than the that particular brand, pastors feel defensive and they become aggressive. But if you have a, a vision of the world that is big enough, that is convictionally reformed, but always reforming, mm-hmm. we've had people in our congregation saying, look, we're, uh, we grew up in Baptist church. We don't know anything about post-millennialism. We're still trying to figure this baptism thing up. They may not change, but we're like, let's talk about this because we're, we're not threatened by it. We've had individuals in our church who were tempted by Eastern Orthodoxy. We're not threatened by it because we're so full of conviction that where we are at this stage of history is where God would have us be, mm. that we don't take we don't take curiosity as a threat to who we are. We take curiosity as people entering into a journey and trying to find solace in a particular place. And I think that's the appeal of the CREC is that people come in with lots of questions and we say, let's talk, let's meet, let's smoke cigars and wings, and then let's open up the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so Kevin did young in the, in the spirit of winsomeness talks about the Moscow mood and begs for kind words, coconuts, pineapples and such. And he he's saying that people are go- flocking. He mentioned that the reason people are flocking to Moscow and, you know, even I, th- I feel like that could be synonymous with just the CRC and just you guys in general. I think he was basically he was saying it's not necessarily doctrinal. It's just more like the vibe and the mood. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I think he meant that as a bad way. I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking it's already, it's already assumed the who, who's flocking there. It's, it's men with kids, you know, and families. So they've already done the legwork. They know where they stand. We're, we're just sick of being, we're just sick of being woke and not talking about the things that actually matter. And then do we not pray thy kingdom come on earth? And, um, 
isn't it when when a when a church body is operating in such a way that everyone's having joy but there is legit you know a, a sort of the closest thing to american persecution we've had for a while at, at the same time and people are laboring together and doing all of life i mean is that not becoming an answer to the prayer so anyways any um man i, yeah. I wish we had way more time any any uh I'll, yeah. i'm gonna ask, put that to you and then i'm also gonna do one last question i'm emerging um a lot yeah i'm doing two and one a, a lot in the olden days it's like denominations based upon baptism and church government and like it's almost visceral you know i could i could just see um what's his name what's the guy over in westminster west who hates scott clark yeah i could just see scott clark roll just just turning thinking of a, a church that that would allow you know different different church you know uh gatherings to be baptist or presbyterian or whatever um but i feel like and and with luther and and all these folks back then like those were not not saying that's not important but it's like we're the need of the hour oh there's so much to say about that but can you speak to those two things yeah let, let me add a couple notes to that pastorally pastorally i i think kevin de young's concern of course he's a, a godly faithful faithful scholar and pastor his concern is that you know moscow is drawing a kind of mood that long term can be deleterious, can be dangerous to the well-being of the church. He's he's gathering a lot of, of overly enthusiastic pugilists and zealots. He didn't use that language. I'm just translating it there. And I think, from my perspective uh, as a pastor, I would much more uh, enjoy having people in my congregation that are that maybe go a little bit beyond where they need to be in terms of maintaining their order and decency. Then the guy who shows up once or twice a month, who is who is apathetic, who is complacent. I don't want those guys because it's really hard to raise them from the dead. But the guy who is full of life, yes. uh, maybe 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 tweets a little bit too much. Yeah, I can I can sit down with them and try to moderate them if they're willing, and most of them are willing. Yeah, and so I think what Kevin is failing to grasp is the times. And that to be uh, a, the, to, to be a son and daughter of Issachar remind uh, requires a certain sense of where we are in history, and it requires us to know that people are angry and they're frustrated with what has happened to them. A lot of people feel that their youth has been stolen from them from weak and cowardly pastors. And so now that as they get older, they have more responsibilities under their belt. Now there's children. A lot of them are saying, my kid's already 70 years old. I got to get with a plan here. Mm -hmm. And they're finding people, they're finding churches that are committed to doing this kind of stuff and to raising arrows that will go through the world and pierce the kingdom of darkness. And so I think what Kevin is failing to see is that um, it's, it's, it's the mood, stupid, you know? It's the economy, stupid, but it's also the mood. And if you fail to, uh, if you fail to harness, if you fail to build on the mood, which can be pastorally worked on, what you're doing is you're failing to build on the men. Yeah, yeah. Our hearts are our hearts are restless, man. <laughs> That's a mood, bro. <laughs> and, and guys should be restless, you know, until they find their rest in God. But what does it mean to find their rest in God? That means now they have a mission. Yeah. And so you can have a, a congregation of 2000 people that are, you know, they're, they're consistent in their attendance, but they have no interest in taking that to their workplace, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 2000 people, parking lot is full. And then you can have some of our little CREC churches like in Brazil with 40 people, 30, 40 people who have been steady for seven years but causing havoc where they are so good so you know good. so all you need is a faithful few you don't yeah. need masses because mm -hmm. masses have put us where we are yeah uh we appreciate you and the crc and doug and the like going precept for precept even though there is just a few of you well i mean there's just a few gay people so why why are they like the loudest it's so good to see 
going tip for tat. You sometimes you got to go to the mat, but it's not winsome. So everyone's all mad about it. <laughs> whatever you could. Uh, we, yeah, we've been joined with Yuri Brito. You could check out his stuff, which he has a lot. He didn't even mention his, <laughs> he didn't mention a lot of stuff. So go check out his site, yuribrito.com. U-R-I-B-R-I-T-O.com. If someone's listening, they want their church to jump in or they want to like maybe consider being a pastor. Where, where can they reach out to? Is there a contact form? Is there a website or anything? Yes, they can go to uh, CRE, CR, CRE churches.org, CRE churches.org, one word, CRE churches.org, and they'll find uh, a way of putting your name as a potential mission church so that anybody who's interested in the CREC can go there and look at. I don't know, Hawaii, and they will see, oh, there, there are three families interested in starting a church. That's one way to do this, crechurches.org. It's a wonderful way to do it. Or, or they can, and, and there they're going to find who is the, the local presiding minister of their part of the country or the world. You know, we have churches all over Eastern Europe. We have churches in Japan. We have churches in all over the place. So the CRE church is probably the best place to go because you'll find the specific location you're looking for. And as I, you know, I wrote recently in the uh, Fight Laugh East magazine about the migration taking place. Uh, some people, for a variety of reasons, it's not always the best thing, but some people, because of the things we talked about, want to move. Yeah. And if they want to move, where do they go? And so we have the website to say, look, the, here are stable churches here are mission churches here are churches that are being planted here's a group of people that want to start a church in gainesville florida a group of people that want to start a church in a different part of the country and so that's the best place to go and i really hope that the the interest grows in the crec not simply because we like to talk against leftists but mm -hmm. because we want to talk about what the christian life is yeah. from conception to our dying day and how does the lordship of jesus apply and that's that's our um uh, that's our elevator pitch yeah 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 i hope i would want to uh join the newly formed kuiper presbytery which i saw that you just launched along with the butzer brother we've been talking with yuri brito it's been a delight super fun thank you for your labors my absolute pleasure thanks for having me we came for salvation we came for family we came for all that's good that's how we'll walk away we came to break the bad we came to cheer the sad we came to leave